0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray together as we stand. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you indeed that your scriptures are sure, uh, that is, uh, sure to find us out, uh, sure to speak uh, the truth of who we are before you, uh, but most wonderfully, sure to speak of who you are, And so, Father, we do pray that you would indeed speak your purposeful word into our lives this night. Uh, Speak it that we may know ourselves. Uh, Speak it that we may know ourselves and so run to you. And so we pray this uh, for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen. Please uh, take a seat. And uh, let me add my welcome to uh, Peter's uh, earlier. If we've uh, not met before, my name is Andrew, and I'm on the staff here. And I do hope to uh, meet you afterwards. If you are new, I'll be standing on the door uh, that you'll head out of. So please do come up and uh, say hello. If you're new amongst us, we're, we're starting, or actually we're, we're th- uh, into our third week of a series uh, in Hebrews. We're calling it high-speed Hebrews. We're moving at a reasonably rapid pace. And uh, so uh, you join us uh, tonight at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11 is where we're picking things up. And it's uh, worth turning to that now, page 1203, uh, 1203 of the Church Bibles. And uh, if you find this helpful, you'll you'll see on the back of the service sheet an outline of uh, where we'll be heading as we look at those uh, verses together, starting in uh, chapter 4 verse 11 of Hebrews Uh, Having said that we're looking at Hebrews, let me start with some words uh, from another part of Scripture. They are some of the best-known words that come from our King, Jesus. And whoever you are uh, tonight, uh, these are words that you need to hear this night. Come to me, says Jesus. "Uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Uh, There couldn't be a more simple command than these words from Jesus, come to me. Uh, Whoever you are, uh, wherever you've been, wherever you think you're going, come to me. A simple command but a giant promise. Did you hear it? I will give you rest. Uh, It's a promise that's actually at the heart of the passage that we're looking at tonight in Hebrews 4. Uh, but more than that, it's a promise that's sewn into the very thread of scriptures all the way through from the very first page of the Bible right to the very end is this promise, I will give you rest. Now Turn to the first pages of the Bible and you will see there God creating this world, creating us, creating a garden, uh, showering on us and on that garden, every good gift, gift after gift after gift. Uh, All, as we read in those opening verses, uh, with the purpose of enjoying rest, uh, coming to the point where he ends his labours of creation. All striving is to cease until the point where we enjoy relationship with God, enjoying the blessings that have come from his hand, and there are many, and enjoying them free completely from fear. And the wonderful thing in the scriptures is that all that happens in between those very first pages and the very last ones, uh, as we turn to the last pages, we arrive back at the very same place. A place that's uh, now no longer a garden, but a city. Uh, but it is a place of rest. Uh, flick through those uh, last verses of uh, the book of Revelation, and you see there what this place of rest is like. It is spectacular. It is spectacular. Uh, No more striving there, we're told, for we have at last arrived where we're meant to be. Uh, There is a place where we are in relationship with the God who made us. Uh, He dwells with us, we with him. We are his people, he is our God. We are face to face. Uh, There we enjoy blessing and life without end. Because we are free from fear. Free from especially the fear that uh, Hebrews that we've been looking at uh, in these recent weeks tells us uh, that is our dominant fear. And that is the fear of death. Fear that uh, death will snatch away this rest from us. That fear is gone in that place. And so Jesus promises, promises it to us. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How good is that promise? But frankly, uh, how not our present experience is that? Uh, rest. Uh, how I could do with a rest. Uh, How about you? Uh, How would you describe yourself uh, this night or perhaps this week, this year? Uh, Would you describe yourself as someone who is at rest or as someone who is restless? That's us, isn't it? Restless. A life for us in this world is marked not by an end of striving but ceaseless striving. Uh, It's just the pace of life. The pace of uh, life where we have this endless effort to get somewhere or the endless effort to be someone that we're trying to be. And life not marked by perfect relationships, but in fact life marked with a relentless effort just to keep relationships on an even keel, just for a moment. Our marriages, our family and friends our places are places, more often than not, of restlessness. And even when we get those moments of rest in the midst of life, and there are moments like that, even if they're superficial, there are moments... Uh, they're short-lived, aren't they? The uh, summer break or, the, uh, or just a, a date night. Or perhaps uh, for those in their first year of university, that, that moment of rest that might come to you this week as you find the lecture theatre at the first attempt. And as to the freedom from fear, well, we're not free from fear, are we? The fears that shape us are not single spies but battalions. A fear that whatever restfulness that we do enjoy might be snatched from us. Financial fears, fear of failure, fear of acceptance, fear of the temptations that have overcome us before doing so again. A fear of approval, you name it, it shapes us. And we are far from rest. But here's what we do, and I suspect I'm not alone. Here's what I do, and I suspect you're with me. When it comes to that feeling of restlessness, uh, when it comes to wanting to get to this place of rest, uh, what we do when we think we try to find a solution is we externalise, by which I mean we look around at all the details of our life and we think uh, if that was different or or that thing over there or if that situation changed, then I could finally rest. And so we plot and plan a, a goal or a destination that if we could get there, then I'd be settled. Or we plan a holiday or we live for Saturday or we, uh, in our relationships, we catalogue all the things about those around us that needs to change if we're going to get along. Or we block out our fears with uh, denial or decadence or just distractions. Uh, But if I'm honest, and perhaps you with me, about all the situations that I do feel restless in, uh, I would see in all of them there is a common denominator Our common problem, me. The problem at the heart of our restlessness, well, the problem is us. God has promised this rest from the very basement of time he has promised us. And our response again and again and again is the sin of an unbelieving heart. A sin which has, as we read in Hebrews, incredibly serious consequences Uh, To hear this promise of rest from the God who has blessed us with everything we have, to hear that promise and to turn away from that promise, well it means that we are cut off from the rest that we don't believe he can give us and we are left as generations before us have done, uh, left not to wander in a garden but in the wilderness really. A place of ceaseless striving, a place where relationships are all bent out of shape, a place where where fears grow, especially this fear of death that Hebrews uh, chapter 2, as we saw, so enslaves us. Generation after generation before us has turned away from this promise through unbelief and not convinced that God is good enough to actually come through. And Hebrews, as we've been looking at it in these recent weeks, has highlighted for us a a generation just like that from the Old Testament, simply known as uh, the wilderness generation, who were on the way to this promised rest. God said, I'm going to get you there. But along the way, they turn away from the God who promised it because of this sinful unbelief, and they never got there. In fact, if you flick back in Hebrews uh, to chapter 3, verse 11, you'll see God declare to this people who rejected that promise, they will never enter my rest. And we're told in the verses that follow, all of them died along the way. There they were, on the way to rest, and they never made it. Well, 21st century Sheffield, our generation is no different. Our heart is the problem. Our sinful, unbelieving heart that hears God's promise of rest, that that it can only be found where he is, that we must trust him. Uh, But our heart grows hard to that word. Convinced that we can find it elsewhere, convinced that we know better than him and not sure he'll actually deliver. Our heart is the problem and not a small one. For if you flick to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 you'll see that this heart, this sinful unbelieving heart actually changes our whole destiny. Rather than lead us to this place of rest. Now the sinful unbelieving heart means that lying before us, the path that we are walking is one where we are Well, we know it, destined to die. And after that, Hebrews 9.27 says, face judgment, judgment from the God who has blessed us with everything, promised this and seen us turn away. And so what does God do? What does he do about this heart problem that we have, this unbelieving heart? Well, we've seen it as we've gone through Hebrews. He speaks. He speaks uh, as we're turning away from him. He won't let us turn away without uh, his voice following us. He speaks a word to our hearts. Now that's what's going on whenever God speaks to us, as he's doing right now tonight. He's not aiming just to pass on information. He's not speaking to fill the silence. He's aiming for your heart. He's speaking to the place, the seat of decision-making in your life, uh, the very engine room for the way you live life, your desires, your motivations, your affections. That's what he's speaking to. And as we'll see tonight, as you can see on the outline, he's going to speak a word to us that is both a word that exposes and a word that exhorts. Well, let's have a look at them uh, together. Firstly, this word that exposes, and you see it there in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 4. Have a look at uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12 where we read this. For the word of God is living and active Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the very thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It's remarkable, isn't it? Sheer grace. The aggrieved party in our relationship between God and us who has showered us with gifts and then promised this rest, this eternal rest on top of that. As we turn away in unbelief to our sort of frantic activities or our messy relationships or trying to make gods out of the things that he's given us as gifts, he speaks. A word that verse 12 says cuts through all the rubbish that we blame for our restlessness. Uh, All the externalities that we say that's at fault uncovers all of that and under that rubble we see the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. And see verse 13, the word he speaks to us, he speaks of our hearts to our hearts, not in abstraction either, but we're told there in all creation. Uh, here is a word uh, sharp enough to dissect and examine the thoughts and motivations of your heart in all creation. That is all of your life, real life. Uh, here is a word that speaks to you as you uh, embark on Freshers' Week, it speaks to your heart in that moment. Here is a word that can speak to us as we wrestle with difficult work relationships. Here is a word that speaks to us as we still simmer days after a row with someone. A word that speaks about the lie that we told to cover up a mistake. It speaks to us as we enjoy that tasty bit of gossip. It speaks as the temptation we vowed would not beat us again, but it does. As, uh, as uh, we, we claimed that we would stand strong and yet we fold like wet cardboard. That word speaks to us then. It speaks to us as we drive uh, to the doctor for the checkup. He speaks to expose your heart. And He does that because He knows what He will find there, because He's found it generation after generation after generation. And He wants you to see it too. He wants you to see the malignant growth of sinful unbelief that is in our heart. You see, into our restless state, God speaks a word that really exposes us. It's a word of uh, the judge of all creation and his verdict, exposed, guilty. You know that feeling of uh, having no excuse left before someone when all the excuses, all the alibis have run out? I met with a man recently who uh, was in just that position, uh, utterly found out in one aspect of his life. It's quite a moment, really, uh, when, uh, when someone is pinned down like that, when all the excuses have gone, uh, there was the shock, the shock of being found out. But then uh, the thing that was remarkable, the thing that still uh, stays with me, was the relief. Uh, the relief that the lies could stop, the relief that the cover-up didn't need to continue. God speaks this word to get us to that place. And his word will do that if we are prepared not to wriggle out from under its search. Uh, But wonderfully, uh, joined with this word that exposes us, we have a word, uh, we're told, of exhortation. A word that says to us, you can see it there in chapter 4, verse 11. See to it that you make every effort not to be like that. See to it that you make every effort to enter God's rest rather than follow the example of unbelief. It's a word of exhortation. Make every effort, God says. Okay, but here's the problem how we're trapped, aren't we? Our hearts betray us. Here is a word that exposes my unbelieving heart and then says to me, Don't have a heart like that. Uh, to which I want to say, I'm trying, I, I really am, but it's exhausting. Now, what's the use of a word that finds you out, that exposes you totally and says, don't be like that? Well, how precious then, how incredibly good is the word that follows that word? Make every effort, the Spirit says, and we look around and within ourselves and think, how are we going to do that? I can't do that. And then come these precious words in 4 verse 14. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He is God's son. Now, Here's why Jesus says to us, come to me and I will give you rest, because he knows he can. He really can, because he is our great high priest. But surely that begs another question, doesn't it? So what? Uh, Here in a a city like Sheffield, which is a restless city, even if you're new to it, you will have seen that. It's just like any other city. Uh, what, what uses news like that to go to our restless city and say don't worry, good news, you have a high priest it's utterly meaningless isn't it and even for the believer I suspect that idea that Jesus is your high priest can become nothing more than tired jargon but the reality is this uh, there is nothing more meaningful than those words, you have a high priest, his name is Jesus and that news of that high priest is indeed the only hope this city has And that for me is why I love this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, In the coming weeks, uh, the author is going to carefully and with much detail reveal the full weight of that news of this office of high priest. Uh, All that groundwork is going to be so that you and I and anyone who would read this letter can feel the full weight of joy that comes with knowing that Jesus is my high priest so let me encourage you to stick with it in this series. Stick with the detail because it's all to give you that confidence. And We're going to glimpse that a little bit tonight in these verses in chapter 5 where we see that this high priest that Jesus is for us was the guy who was the very central player, the key player in the very means that God had established to restore this broken relationship between him and us, a relationship that we broke through unbelief. Uh, Given the problem of our sinful, unbelieving heart, given the consequences, death and judgment, uh, we need a way to make things right if we're ever going to reach that rest. And so what God does, all the way through the Old Testament, you read of this system of sacrifice that he established where sins were met with the sacrifice of animals, the blood of animals, as an offering to cover our sin, to bring us forgiveness. Now the system, and we'll see this as we go through Hebrews, was very deliberate and it was God's megaphone saying, sin, the sin of unbelief and its consequences is more serious than you can possibly imagine. It's a system that, uh, as we'll see, declares that forgiveness, that is, real forgiveness, is incredibly costly. And anybody here tonight who has actually genuinely had to forgive someone, that is, forgive them from the heart, not just a sort of lip service, but real forgiveness will know the cost of that that you had to carry, uh, God's system is declaring that to us. Forgiveness is costly. It's showing us that the punishment of sin is death. The God who gave life as we turn away from him takes it away. And that without the shedding of blood there will be no forgiveness. And so it is this high priest who has the key role in that system. Now have a look with me in chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 and you have there really a job description of a high priest for anybody who would take on this role. Firstly in 5 verse 1 we're told this uh, this person, their job was to represent us, to be the middleman, if you like in this problem we have with God. Uh, 5 verse 1, he represents us we're told in matters relating to God. Don't you love that phrase, uh, matters relating to God, as if there were other matters that don't relate to God. Uh, He's talking about everything we do. All creation relates to God, for he made it. Uh, Here is the one who represents our sinful hearts in all of our lives. Uh, Hebrews 9 verse 7 says, His job was once a year to enter the very dwelling place of God, the very heart of the temple where God dwelt, uh, with the blood of animals to cover our sin, to forgive those sins. He represented us. And secondly, in 5 verse 1, we see he had to be one of us. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If, he, if he's really going to represent us, he has to be one of us. But more than just because he, uh, he has to be one of us to represent us, you also see in 5 verse 1, he has to be one of us so he can understand what it's like to be us. And not to excuse our unbelief, but to sympathise with us, to know what it's like to be this week. And so 5 verse 2, he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wandering. He's not a high priest who does his job with a sort of detachment. No, he knows what it's like. And finally, when it comes to this job, uh, we have the interview panel for the job of high priest. It's a one-person interview panel. It's not a self-selecting job. You can't say, well, I'll take that job, thank you. It's not a job given by popular vote. No, verse 4, he is called by God alone. Again, do you see the grace of it? Uh, The aggrieved party in this uh, problem we have with God uh, sees us, the accused, having no defence and no resources for one. He appoints one on our behalf. Now, When it comes to our sin problem, we have a great high priest, Jesus. Uh, But again, it begs the question, doesn't it? Why is he enough? Why does that give me any confidence that I will enter that rest? Especially given that as we go through in Hebrews, we'll see that in Hebrews 10, the priests were constantly at their job. So much sin were we producing that they never got to sit down and rest from the job. They just have to go back in again and again to cover our sin. And when they dealt with our sin, they had to deal with their own. They were forever at work. And then we have this, perhaps most damning of all of the system. God himself admits that the system in 10 verse 11 is inadequate. Now, the blood of animals could never clean a heart of sin. I mean, think about it, how could it? How could the blood of Fluffy the sheep ever deal with the infinite offence that I have caused by being blessed day after day by the God who gives me life and breath and everything else and then promises on top of that rest forever and I turn away? It couldn't. But, says Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest in Jesus And at last, he is enough. And here in 5 verses 5 to 10, you start to see why. Here in these verses uh, 5 to 10 of chapter 5, we we start to see Jesus for all he is to us. I reckon all too often uh, we minimise Jesus for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Perhaps one of them is we think if we're going to commend him to others, he needs to be a bit smaller and more recognisable to them. And so we call him a great teacher or or a moral example or he'll be a really good friend but I reckon only, you only leave Jesus at that level. You reduce him to that level if you don't see the problem you have with God. God is holy, completely holy, pure and perfect and loving and good. And we are sinners. We are completely alienated from him. We are destined to die once, we know that, and then face his judgment. We don't need another teacher. We don't need a friend. We don't need a moral example. We need a saviour. We need one who can actually fix that problem. And so in these uh, chapters, Hebrews is building the full-weighted picture of the real Jesus so that you can be confident that if you come to him, he will indeed lead you back to that place of rest. And so let me give you the two reasons that five uh, verses 5 to 10 give that you should receive him as your high priest. Now, first is this, like all high priests, he didn't take on the honour himself. He was given that honour by his Father. And in fact, he's given that honour far more than any before him. He's not just any old high priest. He is the high priest, 5 verse 5 says, who is the very Son of God. Now, Jesus was always the Son of God. John 1 verse 1 says, he was there in the beginning, creating with his Father. He was declared as the Son of God when he was baptised. This is my Son, I love him. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. And he proved he was the son, the faithful son, through the testing of his life and death. That's what verses 8 and 9 says, where it says he learnt obedience. What it means is he demonstrated He proved he was obedient until it was perfect, until it was complete. His worth as son and as our high priest was never compromised, not even once. He's always been the son and he proved it on the cross. And having been raised from death, he was declared by his father as the son of God with power, with authority. And so take this in. Our high priest is the loved, tested and proved faithful, triumphant son of God. How good is that? That's the one who goes in your defense. He is the high priest who is not only the son. You see there in verse 6, he is also the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. He's in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to see lots more about him in verse 7, so I'm not going to go into it now, but simply to say this. Our priest is the son and he is king. That's what Melchizedek means. He is the, the sort of priest who has no beginning or end. He is always at that work. He will be always forever at that work. Where he reigns, righteousness comes. Whoever this one serves is made right with God. That's just what we need. And he's about that forever. And so he's appointed son and king. And secondly, like all high priests, he comes from, from us. He's one of us. But where we failed, he succeeds. He lived among us. Each day he shared and knew our weakness. And, then, and this is the focus of 5 verse 7, a wonderful verse. Have a look at it. The focus of that is not every day of his life, but the last day, the very last day, the day of his death. In the early hours of the morning of that day, as the disciples slept in the Garden of Gethsemane, exhausted from failure, he offered up prayers and petitions and loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. But he didn't, because he had to be like us. And Jesus knew that he'd come for that day, a day of profound weakness. And so amidst those tears and petitions, sweating were told what was like drops of blood, He succeeded where our hearts grow fearful and shrink back. He walked into the full force of our sins judgment and he cried, not I'm getting out of here, but not my will, but yours. And and he was heard, we're told. And thank God he was. For that prayer, those five words changed your life forever if you come to him, not my will, but yours. That prayer and its proof on the cross, that's the moment eternal rest was opened back up for you. As he walked that hill later that day, as he was lifted high, as he was nailed to the wood, as the noonday sun, we're told, gave way to darkness, the whole sacrificial system was coming to fulfilment. Here is the moment, more than any other, that declares that forgiveness is incredibly costly, this costly. That the punishment of sin is death and that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. All our restlessness, all our alienation, all our sin hung on him and all our forgiveness and all our hope of rest rests on him and he did it and it was enough. As we move towards a close, I want to say, brothers and sisters, you know this. Uh, You know that Jesus is your high priest but you need to hold that truth close. Uh, When this week, as in any week, you turned away in unbelief for whatever reason, in whatever context it was, Satan saw that moment and he loved it. He loved it. But when he tempts you to despair and he tells you of the guilt within you again, and you just want to run or you want to give up or you want to cover up your sin or you want to make up for it in some way, instead hear the word of the Spirit of God who says, you have a great high priest It's the son who represents you. As he went through the heavens, he didn't take the blood of animals before God, nor the blood of another weak, sinful man. He took the blood of the tested and proved forever son. He took the royal blood of the king of righteousness and laid it before his father. And so tonight I say, Satan, say what you like. You are a miserable liar. For here is what my God says when Jesus brings his own blood. The almighty creator God who is holy and just looks upon his son's sacrifice and says, enough. And let forgiveness come. And so let us make every effort to enter the rest, God promises. And tonight, well, we've seen how. It's not the vow to do better. It's not the denial of my sin. It's not zeal or a pretense that's going to suffice. How do I make every effort? Two things in conclusion. I'll leave these with you. They're in 4 verse 14 and 14 to 16. Now, very simple. First, 14 and 15, you hold fast to him. Cling to Jesus. That's how you make every effort. As your heart begins to wander, hold fast to him. Your eternity hangs by the crimson thread of his blood. And uh, wonderfully, we as a church, our life together hangs on that same thread, His blood. And so let me say, if you're new here tonight, perhaps a first-year student, I've never met you before. uh, But you and me, we've got history. And we're bound together. We have a great high priest. Hold fast to him, for he is able to sympathise with our weakness. He was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. And as you consider your own struggles and think, uh, what what would Jesus know? How can he sympathise with me if he never caved in? Well, if that's in your heart, hear the wise words of C.S. Lewis on this. He says this. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. Uh, this is an obvious lie. Only those who resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like uh, an hour later or a lifetime later. Uh, we've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Now we never find out the strength of temptation until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the full weight of it. He is, in this world, the only complete realist. So hold fast to him. And finally, and perhaps most wonderfully, in verse 16, if you do find your hold of him slipping and your heart wandering, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As our hearts wander, as we grow restless again, as we sin again in unbelief, he calls, come to me, all you who are weary, come to the throne of the Son, your high priest, the King of righteousness, and you will find their mercy and gracious, timely help help Uh, we wouldn't like to say it out loud but everyone in this room needs help Uh, we are a community of sinners and here's the thing Uh, you don't deserve that help Uh, the mess is your own making Uh, the way I caved in this week uh, like wet cardboard Andrew again uh, was pathetic I don't deserve help but here's the thing Uh, You will never deserve the help of Jesus, never. So if that's what holds you back from coming to him, uh, waiting until you feel worthy of his help, or enough time has passed since the wreckage of your failure, or whatever it might be, you will wait forever, forever. So come to him. He lives to represent you. His mercy covers your sin again and again and again and again. Come to him and find the gracious, timely help you need. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. His name is Jesus. He is God's son. And from there he calls to you, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, let me encourage you for a moment to uh, take uh, the next couple of moments to reflect on your high Priest. Reflect on how worthy he is of that role. Reflect on the fact that he is enough. And then uh, in just a moment, Peter uh, will lead us as we come before him and before his throne. So i uh, just take a moment to reflect now.